Because one day I was sitting in a park and three children with bag lunches, dirty clothes, and dirt-streaked faces plopped themselves on the grass beside me. Before I could object or move, the oldest child launched into a complicated story of family dysfunction. She said, hi, my name is Deanna and I'm 12. My sister's Christy and she's 10. And Mikey, my brother, is 6. Actually, we all have different dads. My dad's dead, Christy's dad's disappeared, and Mikey's dad beats him up, so our mom is divorcing the creep. My mom and her fiancé, Larry, are at the casino because they need time alone, so she bought us all a barbecue burrito and told us to stay in the park for two hours. Can we sit by you? In order to be polite, I said yes, and then I asked if they lived in town. No, Deanna said, we used to live in town, but my mom lost her job. Now we live in a tent. I wish my mom could get a new job. I don't like living in a tent. By the way, what's your job? Reluctantly, I whispered, well, I'm a preacher. After a long silence, she asked, Mr. Preacher, can you tell me something? I've heard stories about Jesus walking around healing people, loving people. Why doesn't he do that anymore? The word used more than any other word to describe Jesus' feelings in the Bible is compassion. Now, compassion means to be inwardly moved so that I will do something about it. It's not just an emotion. Very important here. It's an emotion that moves us to action. There's a book that Ellen and I are reading, and some of you have read, I know, called Love Does. Love doesn't just feel. It does things. So let's look at Mark 6, 30 to 44, and there's two things, if you can pick them out, Jesus does out of compassion. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they'd done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fishes. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Jesus does two things out of compassion. Did you see it? teaches them, and feeds them. He met their spiritual need and their physical need. Now, some churches tend to focus on the spiritual need. We've got to preach, we've got to teach, we've got to save souls and rescue people from eternal hell, and that's good and that's right. And then there's other churches, they focus on the physical need. We've got to feed the hungry and help the poor and rescue people from hell on earth, and that's good and that's right. Jesus does both, and so should we. And more and more churches, this is one thing we're doing well in the 21st century, we're bringing these two together, feeding people both spiritually and 
physically. There's three images in this miracle, at least three, two from the Old Testament, one from the New. In verse 34 is the first one where Jesus saw the crowds and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he has them sit on the green grass. I don't know if that reminds you of anything. If you go to a lot of funerals, it might. Psalm 23rd. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. So the first image is that of a shepherd. And Jesus observes that they were sheep without a shepherd. They didn't have anyone to care for them. Now today, Democrats and Republicans want to be your shepherd. And they'll argue back and forth about who is the compassionate party. And most Americans, I think, are wise enough to say, that's a bunch of hooey. Which is the compassionate party? Most of us are kind of skeptical. And then the church talks about compassion. And the church talks about loving God and loving people. And I think people kind of think, well, that's a bunch of hooey too. Do they really? Does the church really care? Is it real? Mr. Preacher, can you tell me something? I've heard stories about Jesus walking around healing people, loving people. Why doesn't he do that anymore? A few years ago is when I was living in Rockford. I had an 87-year-old woman call me and ask me to come over for a visit, and she told me that she moved to our area a few years ago, or a few weeks ago, and she had nothing when she moved in, nothing except a few clothes and her suitcase. No furniture, no nothing, and she was here in an empty apartment. And I went over, and she told me that several people from the church had taken it upon themselves to just furnish the apartment for her, and they furnished it completely. She wanted me to see it, and she showed me a couch and chairs, and they were beautiful. They were, it, was not, it wasn't junk. Lamps, bedding, refurnished dressers that looked brand new, end tables, towels, washcloths, toaster oven, new toaster, canister set. They put food in the pantry for silverware, glasses, and a telephone. Uh, she took me to the bathroom, and there's some night. I get a little uncomfortable going to a woman's bathroom. But anyway, nice basket full of niceties in there. And it was all provided by people in the church. And she told me about her desperate situation she'd been in. And she said, I prayed to God for help. And God answered through his people. And there was tears in her eyes, she told me. And she said, I'm sleeping better. And I'm just so happy. And two or three times while I was there, she said, it's a rare story. It's a rare story. And I thought, let's make it not rare. Love does. Love is something that can be seen. It's not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. People can see it. They can experience it. Another Old Testament image. They were in a quiet place in verse 31. The word there actually is the word for desert. They were in a desert or wilderness place. And they sat in groups of 50 and 100. There's an image going on here. And I don't know if that reminds you of anything in the Old Testament, but they're in a desert and they're grouped off. In Exodus 18, 25, it says, He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And that was in the desert. Now, who did that? Moses. So the second image is Moses. He grouped the Israelites while they were in the desert. Jesus does the same thing here. And he's being portrayed, really, as the new Moses. Now, this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. And in John... Over in John's gospel, they want to make him the king or make him the Messiah after he does this miracle. And they said, this is the prophet we've been waiting for. This is the new Moses. They knew the imagery because it was common in Jewish thinking that the Messiah would recreate the miracle of manna and once again provide bread for his people just like Jesus does here. And then the third image, verse 41, he takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it which reminds us of the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, where he did the same thing with the disciples. So this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is a prediction looking ahead 
to the ultimate provision of Jesus when he'll give his own life. And he won't give us just daily bread. He'll give us eternal life, eternal bread to live with him forever. So every week when we take the Lord's Supper, we're looking back to that sacrifice. But it also should be a motivation for us to sacrifice for others. If you want real life, live a sacrificial life, a giving life, giving of yourself. Several messages in this miracle. Verse 37 says, where Jesus, Jesus says to the disciples, you feed them. Here's the first message. You, we are to feed the people. Every one of us are to be involved in feeding people. The disciples said, send them away. And essentially they were saying, get rid of them and let someone else worry about them. It's kind of like people today, you know, well, the church ought to help them. You know, someone else can help. The government can help them, but not me. I, I like sitting and, and just not doing anything. And Jesus' response is, you give them something to eat. You are responsible. Feed the people spiritually and physically. You are responsible to do love, teaching people the truth and the grace of Christ and also caring for their physical needs. Here's how it often goes in the church. Eh, a lot of times, someone will come up and say, you know, Mark, the church ought to be doing this. The church ought to be doing that. The church ought to help the poor. The church ought to help the young. The church ought to help the old. The church ought to help families. The church ought to be more compassionate. The church ought to be more caring. The church ought to visit the elderly. The church ought to, ought to, ought to, ought to, ought to, ought to. And I agree. Almost always when someone says, a church ought to, I, 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 yep, those are good suggestions. But then I want to ask, who is the church? Who do you mean when you're talking about the church? Usually they mean, well, the preacher ought to, or the staff ought to, or the elders ought to. What people mean is someone else ought to, when they say the church ought to. And when someone says the church ought to do something, what they don't know is they're saying, I ought to do. Because we're all the church. Now, we do have some feeding going on, physical feeding, literally. This ministerial association, food and donations and, and all that to help uh, some underprivileged children in town. Uh, the meal ministry. I want to read one more response from the meal ministry. And this is from someone who does not go to church here. She said, when I had, she mentions her baby, Mark emailed me about setting up meals to have brought to our home. As a new mom, this made me cry. It was people I may not have known willing to sacrifice their time to make meals for my family, to make our new addition transition easier, and I was so thankful. We had plans to have a meal brought. However, our daughter went into the NICU unexpectedly, but they still kept plans to deliver a meal for my children at home and family taking care of them. This was a sigh of relief for me and, quite frankly, overwhelming because all I could think is other people, people other than my family, were really willing to not only make a meal for their family but to make one for mine in time of need. When we finally did come home, they mentioned so-and-so's name, delivered a meal that night, and words cannot explain how grateful I am for that. Coming home to three anxious children to see their little sister and mommy has a lot of excitement, and to have the added stress of making dinner off my shoulders was a good feeling. We had another meal brought in, which was a huge hit with my children. I asked for the recipe, which was her great-grandmother's, but is now a favorite among the kids. Mount Pulaski Christian Church meal ministry is amazing for our small community. It's just one example. I had testimony after testimony sent to me, people who've received meals. And I also know there's individuals in our church that visit shut-ins or the sick. We have one lady that visits another lady every day. Every day. We have volunteers going to nursing home every Tuesday. We have people calling and checking on others. There is a lot of ministry going on. Tony Campolo is one of my favorite ministers, preachers, and he tells how his friends have been hard on him because he had been harping and calling upon Christians to be more compassionate towards gay and lesbian people. And he said, my friends complain because I talk about it all the time. And Campolo said, they don't understand 
that I'm trying to make up for an incredible failure during my high school years. He said there was a high school boy, a boy, named, boy in high school named Roger, and he was gay. He said, we all knew it, and we spread the word about him, and we made his life miserable. When, he passed, when we passed him in the hall, we would call out his name in an effeminate manner, Roger. We gestured with our hands and made him the brunt of cheap jokes. On Fridays after P.E. class, we'd go into the showers, but Roger never went in with us. He was afraid to, and for good reason. When we came out of the showers, we would take our wet towels and whip them at his little naked body. We thought it was a fun thing to do. I wasn't there the day they took Roger, dragged him into the shower room, and shoved him into the corner. Folded up in a fetal position in the corner of that tile room, he cried as five boys urinated on him. That night, Roger went home, went to bed sometime around 10. They said it was about 2 in the next morning when he got up, went down to the basement of his house, and hung himself. And Campolo said, when they told me that, I realized I wasn't a Christian. Oh, I believed the right stuff. I was theologically sound as anyone, but I wasn't a Christian. Now, around here we say Christianity is loving God, loving people. It's not just correct doctrine. Now, correct doctrine is important. I mean, there's so much bad doctrine these days. But when correct doctrine becomes more important than loving God and loving people and serving others, we don't have the correct doctrine. Mr. Preacher, can you tell me something? I've heard stories about Jesus walking around healing people, loving people. Why doesn't he do that anymore? We are to feed the people. And it's not just a few that should be to It's every one of us has been given the commission by Jesus. Second message, feeding people means we will be inconvenienced. And that's why so many don't do it. Did you notice that Jesus and the disciples crossed the lake to get away from the crowds? To be alone, they were tired, they had had a long week, and these people chased them down. In verse 31, it says Jesus and the disciples didn't even have time to eat themselves. So let's be honest. If you get into serving people like Jesus, you're going to be inconvenienced. You take meals to families. I know it's kind of simple, but it's inconvenient. It's extra work. And then you wonder, why are we taking people meals to people that don't even go to church? Have you asked that question? We got deeper issues. One lady that takes meals said this, I've enjoyed taking meals because I love to cook and sometimes it's so nice to cook for people other than your family. It's also so nice to see the people's faces when you take the food to them and they are so thankful to you for doing this for them. Now, it's a small gesture. But it has to be done. And it's inconvenient at times. See, helping others is more than just feeling bad for someone who's gone to the hospital. Oh, poor old so-and-so had to go to the hospital. And then we go back on Facebook for two hours and do nothing. Love does. It doesn't just feel, it does. In one of my previous churches, and this is down in Robinson years ago, I, I, I'll never forget the Williams family. Dad had been in and out of prison. Uh, the mother was nice, but kind of a mousy woman, and the kids were obnoxious, and they were always having financial problems. And I had to go to the judge on Dad's behalf once, and the church paid his bail money, $700 to bail this guy out, uh, bail out a crook. Uh, a year later, the church had bought him a car, they received a lot of gifts from us. They demanded a lot of time. They had a lot of dysfunctional attributes. They got mad easily, and they didn't offer. I mean, they didn't teach class. They didn't give a lot of money. They, they, they just didn't offer anything. They were VDPs, very draining people, both emotionally and monetarily, and eventually they left the church. And I'll be honest. When they left the church, I was so mad. We'd done so much for them, those ungrateful so-and-sos, and we got no return for those acts of kindness. But you know what? They were good for me. They were good for our church. 
God used them to shape us, to raise our compassion barometer. We need needy people. We need someone that we're reaching out to that others don't want to. That's who Jesus socialized and no one else wants to do. Uh, the, the trip that went to Guatemala, that's inconvenient. It's costly. It takes a lot of money. It takes your vacation time. But that trip, I'll guarantee you, did more for the trip takers than, those, than the Village of Hope home. God uses inconvenience to shape us and to mold us and to build us. You sponsors, Sunday school teachers, cleaning the building. It's all inconvenient. Now, I can't be too hard on these disciples. They had 5,000 people to feed. It was just overwhelming. They didn't have any money. They didn't have any food. And uh, when we see the needs around us and the tasks that needs to be done, there's a lot, and it can be overwhelming. And when you first get involved, if you really get involved in ministry, you're going to feel scared. You're going to feel inadequate. But that's what Jesus does, and that's what he does with the disciples. He does with us. He throws us into situations that are too big for us and overwhelming. So we have to depend upon him. So feeding people means we will be inconvenienced and stretched out of our comfort zone. Third message. Feeding people means we will face needs that are beyond our ability to meet. The disciples, we can't feed these people. They're flabbergasted. And you may be asked the things, I can't do that. I can't teach. I can't give for that. I, I can't help. I can't witness to my neighbor. I, I don't know the Bible well enough. I can't teach. You know, I can't witness. And Jesus would say, you're right, you can't. You don't know enough to witness, but still do it. Do it anyway. You feed them. Mother Teresa said, if you can't help a hundred, help one. Pick one person that you can have an impact on, witness to, minister to, get involved in their life. Maybe it's a single young mother you can mentor, or a young boy from a dysfunctional home, or a teenager without a dad. Maybe adopt a lonely person in the nursing home. Maybe you see someone new to church, you just become friends with them. Maybe you can't help everyone. You can help someone. And when you get involved, it will stretch you and beyond your abilities at times. All these disciples can scrounge up as five loaves of bread, two fish, and say, this is it, Lord. And Jesus feeds 5,000 men, doesn't, doesn't even include the women and children, and then there's 12 basketfuls left over. Feeding the people means we'll face needs that are beyond our ability. But here's the fourth message. Feeding people means God will multiply what we give, far beyond our expectations. All he asks is offer what we have, and he'll handle us. It is amazing what God will do through you if you just make yourself available. Get involved in the meal ministry. That's yeah, a small thing, but you'll be surprised the impact that it can have. Work in the preschool. He'll use you. Multiply that. You will be blessed, and they will be blessed. Bring what you have, your time, your availability, and just let him do the rest. Say yes and the opportunities will come. Daryl was a reluctant youth group volunteer. He didn't like the nursing home. And for a long time, he had avoided the monthly services that his church put on at the local nursing home. But when a flu epidemic depleted the group of sponsors, Daryl agreed to help with the next month's service as long as he didn't have to be part of the program. So during the program, Daryl felt awkward and out of place. He leaned against the back wall and he was standing between two residents in wheelchairs. And just as the service finished, while Daryl was thinking about a quick exit, someone grabbed his hand. And he looked down, and he saw a very old, frail, obviously lonely man in a wheelchair. The man's mouth hung open. His face had no expression. And Daryl doubted whether he could see or hear anything. And he didn't know if this guy was in his right mind. But Daryl thought, I have to hold his hand. He grabbed mine. And as everyone began to leave... 
Daryl realized he didn't want to leave this old guy. He'd been left too many times in his own life. So caught somewhat off guard by his feelings, Daryl leaned over and whispered, says, um, I'm sorry, I have to leave now, but I'll be back, I promise. And without warning, the man squeezed Daryl's hand and then let go. It's the only response he got, but he knew the man understood. And Daryl got choked up at that. He grabbed his stuff and started to leave. Inexplicably, he heard himself say to the old man, I love you. And he thought, where'd that come from? What's happening to me? Daryl returned the next month and the next month and the month after that. And each time it was the same. Daryl would stand at the back. Oliver Leak was the name of the guy in the wheelchair. Oliver would grab his hand. Daryl would say he had to leave. Oliver would squeeze his hand, and Daryl would say softly, I love you, Mr. Leak. Every month, Daryl found himself looking forward to visiting his aged friend. On Daryl's sixth visit, the service started, but Oliver still hadn't been wheeled out. And Daryl didn't feel too concerned because sometimes it took the nurses a while to get everybody in there about... But about halfway through the service, Daryl became concerned. And he went to the head nurse and said, um, I don't see Mr. Leak here today. Is, is he okay? And the nurse asked Daryl to follow her, and she led him to room 27. Oliver was laying in his bed, his eyes closed, his breathing uneven. At 40 years of age, Daryl had never seen someone dying, but he knew Oliver was. He walked to the side of the bed, grabbed Oliver's hand, he stayed with Oliver for about an hour, and then the youth director interrupted and said they needed, they needed to go. So Daryl squeezed Mr. Leak's hand for the last time, said, I'm sorry, Oliver, I have to go. I love you. And as he unclasped his hand, he felt a squeeze. Mr. Leak understood and responded. Tears started filling Daryl's eyes. He stumbled toward the door. He almost knocked over a young lady who was standing there, and he said, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. And she said, that's all right, right. I've been waiting to see you. I'm Oliver's granddaughter. He's dying, you know. Yeah, I know. And I wanted to meet you, she said. When the doctor said he was dying, I came immediately. They said he couldn't talk, but he's been talking to me. And he said the strangest thing to me. He sat up and looked straight into my eyes and said, please say goodbye to Jesus for me. And then he laid back down and closed his eyes. And I whispered to him, Grandpa, I don't need to say goodbye to Jesus. You're going to be with him soon. You can say hello. And Grandpa struggled to open his eyes again, and this time his face lit up, and he had this mischievous smile, and he said, as clearly as I'm talking to you, I know, but Jesus comes to see me every month, and he might not know I'm gone. And he closed his eyes and hasn't spoken yet, again. And the granddaughter said, I told the nurse what he had said, and she told me about you coming every month, holding Grandpa's hand, and I wanted to thank you, and, well, I never thought of Jesus as being as chubby and bald as you are, but I imagine Jesus is very glad to have you mistaken for him. I know Grandpa is. Thank you. And Oliver died peacefully the next morning. Mr. Preacher, can you tell me something? I've heard stories of Jesus walking around healing people, loving people. Does he do that anymore? Love does. Will you stand as we continue to worship together this morning?